The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this is the fourth uh, talk in a four-part series. Um, I was just thinking we were, we were together last Tuesday and how much can change in a week. <laughs> I can feel like that. Um, so I, I just want to acknowledge what, what's going on right now in the larger um, society and um, the feelings and uh, reactions and responses that that may be um, bringing up in in us, and and so so my intention is to maybe keep keep uh, keep going with the material that we're talking about, but see how this may connect to to what's happening, and then and and have some time for um, sharing. And just you know, questions or sharing or or, or anything you'd like to say. Um, one of the daunting and wonderful things about Dharma practice is that it includes everything. It includes absolutely everything, and so it's not like, well, I just that's you know, I'm mindful when I come and sit and follow my breath, and then you know, but then I I you know. What do I do the rest of the time? And it, it's, there can really be this sense of uh, practice as a refuge and practice as a way of relating to um, the good and the difficult. And, you know, whatever, whatever arises, um, we have a way of addressing it. You know, it, it, it won't take away the pain of things, but um, the proposition is that it can take away the second arrow, the, the suffering, the reactivity, the ways that we, um, that we tend to make things more difficult for ourselves. And um, one of the ways we tend to make things more difficult for ourselves is resisting the difficult feelings, you know. There's this expression which you probably heard, what we resist persists, <laughs> you know, and this idea of really honoring and respecting our emotional life and, um, you know, everything that, that, uh, everything that arises is, is, is worthy of our attention, worthy of our uh, respect. Um, so um, I, I think this is a great place to be and this is a great practice to be doing um, in difficult times. Um, one of my Zen teachers said something that about um, dark times bring out the heroic in us, you know, And, and I think maybe there's some truth, there can be some truth to that. Um, it's another um, 
example if we needed another example of the truth of change, the truth of impermanence. You know, um, in, in this series, we've been talking about um, these three, said to be these three characteristics of conditioned reality, these three characteristics of experience, um, which are impermanence, unreliability, and not-self. Um, the Pali words being anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And um, that not so much that these are to be taken as ultimate truths, but more as ways of looking at experience, ways of understanding our experience that bring letting go, that bring ease, that um, are in the service of helping us to suffer less. You know, so when we, when we expect for things to be permanent, when we expect um, constancy and stability, um, we're going to suffer when, when things change when we depend and rely on conditions um, to give us a lasting happiness, whether it's um, other people, whether it's um, our own mental uh, life, our own thinking or emotions. Um, will suffer because, because it, it's the nature of, the, you know, because things are changing, um, they, um, they're not capable in the, in the way that we deeply want for, to, to give us the security, give us the safety. And, and then this third characteristic is um, uh, usually translated as, as not self or no self or, or selflessness. Um, this is considered the, mo the more subtle of these insights. These, so these three characteristics are, are understood, as, as we've talked about, understood to be not so much as concepts to overlay on experiences, but actually insights. They're insights that arise through moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness. We begin to really, this facet of experience, this dimension of change starts to come alive. And it's like there can be a point where all we see is change, just change, just arising, just ceasing. Um, there can also be, um, in the same way, this insight of the, the fundamental unreliability or unsatisfactoriness of, of conditioned things. It's like, no, there's nothing here that can do what I, what I want it to do. Um, so this is dukkha. And then the insight of anatta, the insight of, of not self or the selflessness of things, which is that none of this, you know, none of what I experience in this body and mind is can be taken as a 
lasting self, as a separate self, as a fixed self. It's not me, it's not mine. And um, so this, this is said to be an insight that can arise out of moment to moment seeing. Um, this is said to be the most, the, of the three, the, the most subtle insight because, um, well, I think because in a way it goes so, um, you know, we sort of intuitively get, we understand impermanence, you know, things change. You know, if you ask, any, if you ask anyone, do things change? <laughs> yeah, of course, things change. Um, but it's, it's like when you think about it, if everything is changing, you know, it sort of makes sense, okay. Um, everything is changing, so there's a fundamental unreliability to things. And then there's a fundamental um, impersonality to it all. Things are changing, things are arising and passing due to causes and conditions. And to single any piece of that out, a slice of that out and say, that's me, that's mine. Um, it's sort of like, well, how can we? It's all, it's all flux, it's all changing. So in a way it makes sense. But then this paradox that um, for, for most of us, what feels most real and most true is me, <laughs> is myself. <laughs> you know, and not only myself, but my, my, um, my sense of agency, my, my problems, my, my ideas, my identity, you know, what could, what, what could be more, you know, what's more true, what's more real than, 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 than me? So I think this is what makes the, the, the insight of not-self um, tricky to talk about and subtle to see. Um, it, and the first thing I wanna, wanna say about that is that um, there can be some misunderstandings about what this is really, what, what this, what anatta, what not self really means or what it's trying to um, teach us. And what it is not you know, I think what it's not saying is that we don't count, you don't count. There's, you know, be selfless, give up anything you want, just let people, you know, don't, you can't have opinions, don't, you know, um, you can't have boundaries, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what are the, what are the sort of um, ideas about this, but it's, on the contrary, I mean, in a number of Western Buddhist teachers have made this point that having a healthy psychological sense of self really goes hand in hand with understanding this insight of not self. And so this is, this is sort of the, you know, part of it is a, is a question of language. And 
the atta, the self that the Buddha was talking about is not really the, the, the self that maybe is, is talked about in the kind of you know, self-realization or self-actualization. Um, so there, and in a way, having a healthy sense of self, how we would understand it in a modern sense, is an extremely important part of practice. Um, to have a sense of confidence and self-esteem, a sense of positive self-regard, self-worth, a sense of agency, a sense of what I do matters. This is all really, really important and really um, essential for, for doing Dharma practice. Um, there was this expression that was popular a number of years ago, made popular by, I think it was Jack Angler, who was a, was a, a Buddhist um, practitioner and teacher and also um, a psychotherapist. And he said something like, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Have you ever <laughs> heard that? You know, and you know, it's just, again, it's sort of approaching this that um, it's really not about taking on this identity of I'm nobody or I'm going to be a nobody. And um, maybe it's more about um, tuning into a kind of a fluidity with self. You know, and self is, in, for in, the, in this Dharma sense, it can be, self can involve a lot of suffering, a lot of clinging, and a lot of contraction, contracting around something. One of my favorite definitions of, of self is as a point of contraction. You know, so what is, what is that? What is, what, you know, can we sense into that physically when the perspective of self becomes a point of contraction, when the perspective of self limits us and brings suffering. Um, and then there may be times that the perspective of self, the point of view of self, doesn't bring contraction, doesn't bring suffering, and is actually really healthy, is really important is really a, um, that there's a kind of um, self-expression or self um, coming forth with the self that's beautiful. That's, you know, so I think ultimately the question for Dharma practice is not so much about is there a self or is there not a self? And famously, the Buddha was asked that question. And, and as we're told, the Buddha of the Pali Canon was asked, is there a self? And he didn't answer. And then he said, is there not a self? No answer. You know, um, is there neither a self or not a self? No answer. <laughs> you know, and maybe one, one, teaching we can draw from that is that the fundamental question is really not so much what is the true self or is there a self or what is the um, the, the lens is, is really more about suffering 
you know, what, what brings suffering um, and what reduces suffering, what allows us to be free of suffering. And um, so, so in, in this teaching of not-self, the Buddha is saying, just in this very simple way, when we identify with something and take it to be me, take it to be mine, um, which isn't me, which isn't mine, that will bring uh, pain, that will bring suffering, that will bring... Um, when I identify with this body, so the, Buddha, so the Buddha identified these five areas that we tend to cling as self, self-clinging, or sometimes people just call it selfing. You know, self becomes a verb, which is actually a really good, you know, a really good understanding of this. So there are five areas where we tend to do this selfing, where we cling to self. The first one is, is, is form, which is, which is this body. And the Buddha is saying, um, you are not your body. Um, if you were your body, if the body were who you really are, then you could tell, you would have some control over it. You would have some agency over it. You could say, don't age, don't change, don't get sick, um, you know, don't suffer, don't die. And as we know, we have some control over our bodies, certainly. We have some sense of agency, but you know, the, but there's also this other, um, this other understanding, this other dimension of the body, which it's part of nature, and it's going the way that all of nature goes. It's impermanent. You know, it's like we talked about last week: the water flowing in one direction, and no matter how much we want it to go flow uphill, you know. The nature of, of it is to flow this way. The, nat the nature of the body is to change, is to, um, is to age, is to, is, to, is to come apart. And so the Buddha is saying, if you take that to be yourself, who you really are, um, we'll suffer. And if we can somehow see that this body is not me, is not mine, but is actually part of nature, part of the fabric of things, then this way of seeing the body can bring letting go, can um, bring peace of mind, can, can, can drain the suffering out of the experience of change. The body will still change, the body will still age, but that doesn't have to be a problem doesn't have to be a problem. Um, so in the same way that the Buddha says, the body is not who I really am, he's also saying these other four realms of experience, feelings, um, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. You know, even my awareness, even consciousness, this is, tends to be the most subtle thing. So, okay, okay, I'm not my body. Okay, I can, I do identify with my body, um, but I can sort of get that. 
okay, I'm not my thoughts or opinions. You know, I do identify with my thinking. I do identify with my preferences, my opinions, but I can, I can sort of get that. But even our sense of awareness, our sense of consciousness, the Buddha is saying, this is not me. This is not who I really am. And that tends to be the most subtle and the most difficult because we're so, um, we tend to, uh, most of us tend to, even if we don't explicitly name it, we tend to identify with myself as the experiencer, you know, myself as the knower myself as the subject, you know, there's objects out there and then there's a subject. There's someone who's, 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 who's seeing it, who's knowing it, who's witnessing it, who's experiencing it. So that must be me. That must be who I really am. And the Buddha is saying, um, check that out or be open, be open to even, even the possibility of consciousness or of awareness as in, as having um, an impersonal nature. It's not, not even that is something that I can call as me. Um, so, so it's, so, you know, it's almost like, can we let that be a question? And in um, in times of meditation, in times of moment-to-moment mindfulness, um, it, it may be possible to even see the arising of the knower along with what's known. It's like it's said that these two arise together. The knowing and the known, they create each other. You know, it's not like there's this ongoing knower and there's this sort of parade of things that it knows that they pass through. It's that actually maybe that these, these, these co-arise together. It's possible to see that. And the virtue of seeing that is, is, is in the same way as these other two characteristics. It's like, oh, it's like there can be a letting go. There can be a, oh, I don't even have to identify with knowing, with awareness, with consciousness, with mindfulness. So one of the um, help, helpful ways that I found of understanding from a Dharma perspective, this idea of self, self and not self, is that um, self less as something that's ongoing and self-existent and fixed and immutable and separate, but more as, of, as a process, like we talked about self as an action, self as a verb. Um, Gill sometimes talks about um, the, the contraction that comes when, when we make a fist, you know, and this idea is like, well, does, does a fist exist or not? Well, 
it exists when we make a fist, when we contract around something. And when we release that, when we release that fist, when we release the hand, open the hand, where has the fist gone? You know, it's, it's, it's something that comes into being through causes and conditions, and it's something that can be released. One of the ways I, I like this analogy for, for the process of selfing, of making a self, is that there's, in order to keep a fist, we have to keep remembering to contract. You know, sort of like the nature of, of things is to let go. When we just allow it, things, things tend to release, things tend to let go. And then we remember, oh, I have to make a fist again. And then and um, is there something about this, this self, selfing process that, um, that gets fueled, that, that, these, that we tend to contract and make a self um, in an ongoing way? And if there is, that may point to a way that we can um, relax this, soften this process. Um, so, the, so the Buddha talked about these three, three ways that we cling and create a self. Um, the first was this uh, sense of possessiveness, this sense of, of calling something, understanding something as mine. You know, when, when we do that, um, you know, and this is just sort of an invitation to look, an invitation to, to check it out. When we, when we um, cling to something as mine, um, is there a way that this creates a self and is there a way that this creates suffering? Um, I mean, I think we all are probably very familiar with the pain that can come from possessiveness, the pain that can come from, from um, holding on to something and, um, you know, and then the fear that can come from losing it or the fear that can come from someone else takes it or um, this is such a human thing. And the Buddha is pointing to this and saying, okay, just you know, take a look at this. Take a look at this area. So the second way that we create uh, a contraction around self is through this, com this um, idea of the comparing mind. You know, um, the Buddha called this conceit. And the idea is that any sense of comparing, any sense of um, you're, you're better than me, I'm better than you, or we're the same. Any sense of comparing myself to another creates the self and brings with it suffering. Um, I've talked about this before. I, I can't, I'm not sure if I talked about it here or that my, um, I have two daughters and my, I have a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old. 
And it's been very interesting to me to see how the comparing mind, how early it arises. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's sort of a, I think it's just part of the development of thinking, development of thought. But at, at one point, my, my younger daughter, you know, she no, she's noticed that she's, she's um, quite big for her age. And then my older daughter is petite in a certain way. She's, she's like a string bean. She's tall and, and very light and very skinny. And that my younger daughter is shorter than my older one, but, but she's sort of thick and, and sturdy. And so at one point she started just in the car on the way to school. She starts, um, what I realized is she was taunting my older one. She starts saying, I'm big, you're small. <laughs> I said, what? You know, what did she say? I'm big, you're small. I'm big, you're small. And then my other daughter would get so upset, you know, wind her up. And, and um, anyway, just this, this, this comparing, this, this, it's so, um, it's, it, it seems, you know, we're so conditioned to do this as human beings. And so just to sort of sense into um, how the comparing mind uh, creates so much suffering for us. And, if, and there's, if we need to do that. This is, there's, there's a place for it. But, um, you know, is there a way that we can also not really believe it so much? You know, that, you know it's like that our differences are not that important in some way. Um, so how do we relate to that? So there's the sense of possessiveness, the comparing mind, and then there's, um, we cling to views, according to the Buddha. Our, our views is a really big one. Our opinions are, I mean, just with the whole, I, mean, I don't even have to say, the whole election and the whole um, is the, the pain around um, identifying with my views. I, I was I was talking to a friend last night who was visiting from New York City, and he was saying that he um, that his parents, who live in Florida, have a very different political orientation than he does, and that they. Um, That, and, and they had so much conflict around, around this that he said this weekend was their anniversary, their wedding anniversary, and he didn't call them because he just didn't want to, he just knew if he talked to them, this would all come up. And he didn't, and he, there was just, he just felt that he couldn't, skill, he didn't use these words, but basically that he couldn't skillfully relate to them right now. And, um, you know, so this is um, we 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 can be very passionate about our views, and we may have very deep and heartfelt um, reasons why we why we believe what we believe. Um, and this this pointer is just sort of asking us to check out. 
not so much the content of my views, but how am I relating to them? You know, is there a way that I'm contracting around my opinions that is actually closing something off? That's, um, and um, so, so, it's, so it's, it's an invitation to take a look at this. Um, I just want to say a few things about ways of practicing. You know, if, if we can sense into the times that um, self as self, uh, the ways that um, self can bring suffering, the, the ways that clinging is connected to self, um, how to practice with this. Um, one of the very interesting um, uh, times of, of looking at this can be in meditation. Because often in meditation, the thinking mind, even if we don't really see this, the thinking mind has, has relaxed a little bit. The thinking mind has calmed down. And um, so this process of, of, of building a self is, is very, we can begin to see that it's very intimately connected with our thinking. So, so many, um, many teachers have put this question in different ways, but it's like, when, when there are no thoughts or when the thinking mind has relaxed, um, who am I? Who am I then? You know? And um, it, just to notice the times that this process um, of, of creating an identity um, is relaxed. And, it, and, and in, a, in a very ordinary way, um, this can be connected to this, this kind of self-consciousness. You know, um, one of the wonderful things about children is that they often, um, they sort of have to be conditioned into self-consciousness and there's going to be this incredible freedom that children have and this freedom of self-expression. I mean, I think that's one of the, uh, the reasons that um, children's artwork, children's poetry, children's is so can be so fresh, so original, so profound, because there's nothing that's blocking it. It's like, you know, they haven't been taught to be ashamed or to be, to protect themselves or to, um, to try to present themselves a certain way, um, to build a self-image, a self-identity. Um, and I think that in a way can sometimes be a reminder for us you know, that, uh, of a pointer for us, of that is there a way of being in the world that far from sort of muting our individuality or muting our self-expression, that it actually really um, releases it. It releases something beautiful. When we, when we can really um, 
where we can really get the pain of, of, of extra selfing, then um, in a way we can release everything. You know, we can free all these, all these things in our, in, our, in our psyche, in our life, and let something come forth that maybe is truly authentic, is truly original, is truly all of these beautiful qualities aren't blocked. Our, our courage isn't blocked. Our generosity isn't blocked. Our, our willingness to be vulnerable isn't blocked. We're not defending something. Um, I think we all know the sort of the pain of of being limited by our ideas of who we are, being limited by our ideas of self, um, self definitions. My my four and a half year old last night, we, as I was putting her to bed, and we were talking, and she was talking about so and so's parent is a doctor, so and so's parent is a teacher, so and so's parent. She's like. But you and Mama, you're just parents. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and I said, "Well, yeah, but you know, I, I also, you know, I also, I also teach, and I." I, I so, but you don't go every day. That's not a real job. I said, oh, no, no, no. "But you're really, you're really, you're really just parents." It's okay, okay, you know. And you know, it was just very interesting this, that 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 um, I was sort of just amazed that um, because we've never addressed, you know, I, we, we've never addressed it one way or another. Um, but the you know, and the the ways we define ourselves, the way others define us, and. And maybe there's a way that for children, understanding one's pa- it's really important for parents to be parents, you know, and to and to and to be to have that almost be like as a as a primary self identity for a child or at a certain point in a child's development. I don't know, I don't know, but it was just interesting. And then I was thinking the ways that I've limited maybe my mother or my parents and you know of of seeing this person as a mother first and foremost that's that's what you are you're a mother and you're my mother and you know so there's this self-definition there's this possessiveness there's this you know and maybe the ways that developmentally at some point that's healthy and then the ways that really limits does that limit the relationship you know does that limit the appreciation of this other human being in all of their, um, you know, three, four, five dimensionality that we, you know, we just sort of look, you know, see, see her in this role, in this thing. And, and so not only do we build our own selves and to the extent that this involves clinging and holding and contraction, it brings suffering. But we, we sort of build other people as selves. To make a self makes other selves, makes others. And um, Joseph Goldstein has had this, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, a senior Dharma teacher from the East Coast has this wonderful, had this wonderful insight or this wonderful line. The idea of my mother is not my mother. <laughs> you know, and that was very, very important insight for him in his early, in his early meditation practice. And so there's something there about, about, about relaxing the, the, the building of, of a self and And maybe there's a way that um, through moment-to-moment mindfulness practice, we um, it's like this not only does this process start to relax, but we begin to build a capacity to hold um, all the different aspects of our experience. You know, so often when we make a self, there's a part of that self that is excluded. You know, in psychology, they call that the shadow. You know, there's a, there's a side that's unwanted that can often be um, suppressed or disowned. You know, if I have a self-image of, of myself as a person who is compassionate, um, the cruel aspects of myself or the cruel um, uh, you know my anger maybe I maybe it's hard for me to see my anger maybe it's hard for me to relate to my anger because of a self-image I have of someone who whoever doesn't get angry or something you know so that sort of gets pushed aside and there's something about in the moment-to-moment mindfulness practice, we begin to be able to include everything, include the parts we like, the parts we don't like. Um, and our idea of who I am begins to open up. You know, it begins to be something that's maybe that's bigger, that's more vast than that can be defined in, in, with concepts. And um, so just to, you know, just to, um, just to notice, you know, when, when self, when self comes up, um, can we hold it? Can we expand our view, hold it with a lot of care, a lot of compassion, but just check out what's, what's not being included or what's, you know, what's, um, what's missing in this picture. And then so just to end with, you know, this, these three characteristics are, um, are, are really in, in, in this, our tradition, our understanding, um, avenues to insight, avenues to wisdom. When we really understand impermanence, when we really understand the unreliable, um, unsatisfactory uh, nature of conditions. And when we really 
see the pain of clinging to any condition as who I am, then we can move through this world with wisdom. Um, we're, we're still in the world of impermanence, but we're, we're more free. We're, um, we're still able to pick up the perspective of self, but we're not fixed on it. We're not locked, uh, locked into it. Um, we see it as a perspective, not as some ultimate truth, but it's just a perspective. And sometimes the perspective of self is very, very useful, very helpful. Um, and sometimes the perspective of self is painful, is limiting. And so what is it to be free to, to sort of choose, free to choose when to, when to pick it up and when to let it go? Um, there's a, there's a famous um, Zen s summation of Dharma practice by, by um, a, a Zen master called Dogen. And he said, to study Buddhism is to study the self. So it's like Dharma practice, Buddhism, isn't something that's in a book, isn't something that we need to um, read about necessarily. It's, it's, really, it's really studying the self, how we create a self, and um, how we can uh, be free, be free from the self. So to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be awakened by all things. Um, recently, I heard one teacher translated that slightly differently, and he said he substituted the word self for the word your story. <laughs> he said that was pretty good. So, to study Buddhism or to study the Dharma is to study my story. To study my story is to forget my story. To forget my story is to be awakened by all things. So there's something in the way that we, we make a story and to be able to see it as a story is, it can be very freeing. I just want to end with this little verse, which I thought is a very nice expression of what may be the opposite of this contraction around self. This is uh, Shabkar. I raised my head looking up and saw the cloudless sky. I thought of absolute space free from limits and then experienced a freedom without center, without end. So maybe this, this, this freedom is something that's within each of us and um, it's not in conflict with 
anything else, any, any of the other kinds of um, ways of being. But when we can see, when we see something about the nature of experience, um, we can open, we can open to um, something beyond even that. Okay, uh, thank you very much and very nice to be with you these weeks.